Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. Elixir Days will be taking place March 4th in St. Augustine, Florida. Elixir Days is a one-day conference with a nearly full day of talks and a helping hack session to close it out. Visit elixirdays.com, that's elixirdaze.com, to find out more. Erlang Factory San Francisco will be taking place on the 10th and 11th of March, with training on the 7th through the 9th of March and the 14th through the 16th of March. Tickets to the conference are available now, and visit www.erlang-factory.com slash sfbay2016 to register and to find out more. LambdaConf 2016 will be taking place May 26th through the 29th in Boulder, Colorado. Visit lambdaconf.us to keep an eye out for updates. Polyconf 2016 will be taking place from the 30th of June through the 2nd of July. The call for proposals is now open and will be taking submissions through the 13th of March. Visit polyconf.com to keep updated with news as more details become available. Visit eventil, that's E-V-E-N-T-I-L dot com slash events slash polyconf dash 16 to submit your talk proposal. If you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Harris Proctor, and this week with us we have Mike Craig. Mike, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me on, Proctor. I've been interested in functional programming since college, and I got into Haskell, into writing Haskell, right at the end of my time at school. But just for side projects, and a professor got me into it, and I didn't really have a production use for it at that point. But I joined a startup and wrote a lot of Ruby, and then eventually found myself at a bigger company where we wrote a lot of Java. And and I, I continued along with Haskell on the side, building building projects and occasionally fitting it into work. but you know, really just as a hobby. But these days, I am co-founder of a startup called Wagon. We're in San Francisco, and we write a lot of Haskell, and we also do a lot of functional JS. So you got introduced to Haskell at the end of school. Was that something that was part of the school's curriculum, or was that just you managed to stumble across it through some other means? And what did that look like when you were first getting exposed to Haskell? And what other languages were they teaching you in school around that time for a compare and contrast of how you found Haskell related to what else you were learning? Yeah, it was very much a stumble across. I had a couple of professors that were interested in functional programming and taught it through Scheme, or I guess at that time, Racket. But there was no Haskell in our curriculum. Almost all of our curriculum was Java. And I had gotten into Ruby for a little bit of a school project and Objective-C as well, the same way. But my winter term, we we had a winter term in which we had independent projects going on. My winter term my senior year, I started to jump into Haskell because one of my professors had kind of nudged me that way and found that it it solved a lot of, not solved, but improved on a lot of the things that seemed seemed wrong uh, in, in the world of programming. And it just, it stuck. And I, despite working in Ruby and working in Java, I uh, couldn't get myself away from it. So you took the courses in Lisp. And what did that look like? When you were first getting introduced, so I guess to go back to the little more the functional roots, you kind of got if you had some courses using a scheme or racket or whatever PLT scheme or whatever it was at that time. What did that look like as far as making that transition and getting introduced to 
functional programming there because if you're doing Java and Objective-C, you don't really get those styles. Yeah, definitely. And so what was that like kind of getting that first introduction before you made it into Haskell and went completely pure? So those those projects taught me, I would say they taught me functional in the small. That's where I learned about map and, you know, map and filter and fold and things like that. And learned that you can compose real programs out of expressions. You don't have to tell the computer imperatively how to do each step. So that was the very basics of it. And it taught me things like code can be data and not in the assembly rewrite your own code way, but in the you can build a syntax tree and then interpret it all in the same program. So that was, as a learner, that was very much a sort of relevatory moment, understanding that, that you could compose programs algebraically. But then I think that those courses were just before I got into Haskell, I guess, which makes sense. And I left them thinking, well, what keeps this program doing the right thing? And like, how do I know if I plumb it together wrong? How can I tell that it's broken before I run it and before I find that edge case uh, in practice? And I think that that kind of thinking is what, what really led me into Haskell. So with that functional programming in the small, I would take it that you dug it and you got into it and you liked it if you had a professor or instructor or whoever points you towards the direction of Haskell and going even more down that route and into the more aspect. So you found that. And if you're doing Java and Objective-C and even some Ruby, was that something that was a pretty big mind shift to you? Or was that something that you managed to get and it made sense to you up front? So yeah, Haskell was definitely a, a mind shift. And I think I think a long time writing Haskell on the side, I wrote very small programs and I tended to plumb together these, you know, just small sets of expressions to do what you might do with a shell script or to do some light data processing or text processing. And I, I, I was stuck in that sort of OO frame of mind that Ruby and Java and Objective-C put you in. And then a, a little bit later in my Haskell learning curve, I guess, I got into putting together bigger Haskell programs and understanding how you can plumb those together and, and use types as APIs within your program and things like that. But definitely, I, I would say that my Haskell and my, my OO background in industry definitely cross-pollinated quite a bit and tried to take some functional into those OO contexts. And also the Ruby Java world definitely affected my Haskell learning. And as you went down that road of learning Haskell and developing your knowledge and skills there, if you're also working in Ruby, which is a very dynamic language, and Java, which is a statically typed language, but doesn't have the strength and expressiveness that you get with a lot of Haskell from what I've seen and everything everybody's told me about it. Did you find any kind of conflict there as you're working back in these other languages based off your experience with Haskell and that type system and say, well, in this case, I'm really wishing I had some of that dynamicism that Ruby gives you in my Haskell or this is a scenario where, oh, man, I really wish I could have the type expressiveness in my Java or Ruby programs. What was that balance like as you were working back and forth and going back and forth between the two? Yeah, those two sort of examples you gave, I, I had cases of both of them. So one of them was coming from Haskell and coming from Haskell type classes and then trying to do seemingly straightforward things in Java. I wanted the tools from Haskell there in Java. And I think, I think my favorite example of that is just JSON conversion, which is so beautifully expressed by the ASON library in Haskell with it. And because we can do uh, return type polymorphism in Haskell, we can 
we can choose the the right JSON deserializer based on the the return type that we want out. There's no good way to do that in Java, and you wind up with factories and factory factories, and there's multiple different libraries that that people use to try to do a good job of this. But it's you just want it to work the way it does in Haskell. And I spent some time frustrated on that. And then the other way, the OO stuff coming back to Haskell, Ruby, like you said, is so dynamic. And in some sense, you can do a lot of data processing, especially if it doesn't have to be very high, high performance or if it's just for a little scripting task. You can do it really easily and quickly in Ruby because all of the types coerce to each other and nothing ever complains. And then if you try to come to Haskell and you're, you're not steeped in Haskell's sort of number type class hierarchy, it's, it's much more difficult. And so that, that was a learning moment where I had to convince myself, like, is this, is this worth it? Is, is it more complicated than it needs to be in Haskell? And then I think at this point I've come around and I, I appreciate the specificity that Haskell gives us there, but definitely chafed against it. The, the convenience is, is big in dynamic languages. And that's one of the things I hear in the battle between the statically typed languages like Haskell and other ML family languages where Haskell and the like force you to think up front and figure out your contracts before you can really start working. Whereas some of the dynamic languages like Ruby or the list variations, you can get in there, you can play and you can experiment at the REPL really easily and just figure out what you're trying to do from these small parts, build them up and essentially more improv. You kind of know your goal, but you're not quite sure how you're doing it. And you're doing these small little experiments just in the REPL. So when you get there, how have you found that balance as well, because I've heard of some people mention the GHCI, which gives you your kind of REPL behavior, but is that some balance that you're still working with and trading off when you do your daily Haskell? Yeah, it's it's definitely a different style of programming. I think we get some good, fast prototyping out of Haskell nonetheless, and GHCI is a big part of that. One of the nice things about Haskell is that the compiler GHC is full-featured and fast, but nonetheless, you can find yourself waiting for builds occasionally, but not with GHCI. So that's one tip, I guess, is that GHCI gives you a, a really fast way to recompile your code incrementally. So that, that helps with fast prototyping. But yeah, then in, in terms of the sort of improv style of, of hacking your way to a solution, there is a little bit more thought up front, when, at least when I write Haskell. So you mentioned the speed that GHCI gives you. and we dropped the call. So now that we're reconnected, do you want to go in and kind of give an outline of some of that stuff that that fast prototyping in Ruby and the Lisp style gives you and where those trade-offs fall from your end of actually having to slow down and think about types up front? Sure. Yeah, like I was saying, Haskell and, and using GHCI, it does change your, your programming style a little bit. I do find myself thinking about types a lot more upfront thinking about the shape of my data and the structure of my data, and then, of course, the structure of the processing that I want to do. Do I want to read it all into memory, or do I want to stream it, or you know, what, what have you? So that's a major change. And then, yeah, I think, I think the thing that's strong in Ruby with the REPL, again, is that everything is kind of coercible, and you can just read things in and, and throw it in, a, in an array, and it's, it's fine for small uses, and, and it frequently gets the job done. And I, I will occasionally lean on those tools. I don't think that Haskell is the right tool for every job. And banging out something super quick and dirty, those are great tools for that. But prototyping your way to something 
sort of production worthy or something that's going to be longer lived, I think that Haskell and GHC are, are really great tools for that. You said you were doing Haskell on the side and starting with smaller projects and just doing it for whatever outside of work. And you're generally working in Objective-C or Ruby or Java. What was that evolution like as you're working in those languages and feeling some of those pulls of Haskell that you're doing on the side? Was there any change in there as to how that affected the way you wrote your Ruby code or your Java code? Did you try and pull in stuff and see about things like Scala or see how that would interest you and try and gain adoption of some of that stuff to help feedback? Because you said your functional side and your OO sides were kind of feeding back and forth to each other. What, What did that look like as you were having to do your regular work in your normal day job and not getting to use Haskell during that time? Yeah. So in Ruby, to start there, uh, I would say that it it definitely pushed me towards the sort of functional side of Ruby. And Ruby has support for for some functional basics. You can map and you can filter and you can reduce. And also just sort of more functional patterns of defining classes that meet contracts rather than classes that necessarily like model data and using classes to sort of model behavior in a way that you might use a type class rather than using classes to model data. And I, I, don't, I honestly don't know if that was the right thing to do in Ruby, but Haskell definitely pushed me in that direction. And then similarly in Java, Java having less, at least at that point, it's, I think it's improved a little bit, but Java having less sort of functional basics like map and filter, I did find myself looking at things like Scala. We didn't use them on my team at that time, but it was very interesting to see how the Java world uh, of object-oriented programming could be adapted to the Scala world. And seeing how that interface worked on other teams that were using Scala and Java was very interesting. So then you made the jump into doing full-time Haskell. Was that just part of the company as you started it? Or was that some other things leading up to that, that you were able to get the full-time jump into Haskell? So before we started Wagon, Wagon was just a side project and its first prototypes were written in Haskell. So that was, at that time, not a SQL editor. It was sort of a collection of other data tools. And the server side of those things were all written in Haskell. And then when we started to grow the team at Wagon and had made it a real company, we had to decide, well, are we going to continue with Haskell? Are we going to be a Haskell company? Or do we want to take these prototypes and throw them out and rewrite this in Scala or Java or or Ruby or, or some other thing? We even evaluated doing some of those changes And in the end, we did wind up throwing out most of our prototypes, perhaps for the best, but we did stick with Haskell. And we, my co-founders and I worked together and we got up to speed on Haskell and we started to find some other Haskellers to pull in. And yeah, we went from there. So you're using Haskell in production. I'd like to get the kind of 30,000 foot overview first, and then we can kind of dig into some of the specifics. But what does your setup look like from just a high level of using Haskell in production? Because you've got some server-side stuff, but is that things like web services that are written in Haskell, or how is that set up on the server-side? And you also have got some client-side stuff you said as well, right? Yeah. So let me let me give the, like you said, the 30,000-foot sort of architecture overview. Wagon is a, a SQL IDE, but it's also a web app where people can share data and queries that come out of that SQL IDE. So you're totally right. On one end, there's server-side components that function a lot like the web app. 
but there's also client-side components that power the IDE itself because it's a desktop application. And we have Haskell in both of those places. We have server-side Haskell for the web app stuff and then client-side Haskell powering data processing and database connections in the desktop app. So if we jump to the server side a little bit, that is kind of essentially web service like where it's taking in connections, acting as a web app or whatever versus a bunch of background jobs that you just have running as just other small services that are just processing data as they come in or whatever via cron job or message queue or whatever you're doing. How does Haskell fit in there? Because for a number of people who may have only been a, done a cursory look at Haskell, picturing what a Haskell web app or web service interaction might look like could be something that's hard to picture. I know it is for me without having dug deep into real usage of Haskell versus just looking at some syntax and how certain small samples are structured. Yeah, definitely. So for one, it, it is exactly a web app. We do some other background processing with Haskell, but our our main server that powers the application is a is a Haskell web server. We run it on Amazon. It's like a normal web app architecture. It, it runs behind the load balancer. It's a, It has much the same shape as a web server that you would be familiar with from another language. And then down at the at the actual Haskell level, we use a, a web server called uh, Warp. And we use, it's not really a framework, it's really just an interface on top of Warp called Y. And that's W-A-I, it stands for Web Application Interface, hearkening back to the Ruby world that's very similar to Rack. So it's, it's not a framework, it's just sort of the interface that you use to talk to the web server. And coming back to Haskell, that interface is just a function. So our web server is just, at the top level, it's written as a function from an HTTP request, which is just a Haskell value that we can deconstruct in a few different ways. It's a function from an HTTP request to a response. And it's actually, in Haskell terms, it's a, a function from a request to an IO response, which is just to say that we can talk to the world, we can talk to the database, we can cause side effects in the process of handling an HTTP request. But that top-level interface that's just a simple function makes it incredibly flexible. And we have some internal routing and some internal sugar that we've built up as a library that makes that process of writing that function and composing it a little bit easier. But at the end of the day, that's all it is. We're just talking about a function from a request to a response. And hearkening back to the rack in Ruby, the ring enclosure, the plugs in Elixir, but with Erlang and whatnot is because you have that just request to response mapping, you get the nice ability of composing those in a nested composition, correct? You can essentially have one function that takes the request in and then returns the IO response and have that just essentially wrap and delegate and call out to a nested chain of function calls instead of where there it's a more of a wrapping composition than a pipeline composition, but that gets you that ability, correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the this abstraction makes it really easy to write middleware in some sense. So if, if you have a little web service that does, you know, whatever, and you want it to support cores, for example, like, and cores is cross-origin resource sharing, it basically means you need to add a bunch of additional headers to your requests depending on their structure. You can write that without having to touch any of your existing code. You can write this cores middleware and just, like you say, wrap that inner web service function and provide additional functionality that way. 
are you able to take advantage of that middleware style functionality and go all the way down to your app? Is there, or is there something else that kind of splits it out where everything is just middleware all the way down, including things like routing and the whole it's turtles all the way down. So it's just functions all the way down that take a request in and return an IO response. We don't take that strategy. You can write web services that way. We've taken a strategy that's it's actually a little more common among the Haskell web frameworks of having what's essentially a monad transformer that gives you access to your various parts of your request and various dependencies of your web app, like, for example, a database connection pool and logging and things like that. So having this, this monad transformer, basically a, a souped-up IO monad in some sense, and then we write our application uh, in terms of those. So we, we call that the, the handler monad, like a request handler. And then we, we write small handler expressions, for example, parsing query parameters, and we compose them just like normal Haskell monadic composition into bigger handlers that handle a whole request or handle a whole resource, like a, a whole API resource, and then eventually at the top level handle the whole API. So routing, which you mentioned, is is embedded in that that handler. Okay, so that doesn't sound terribly far off from what I'm picturing the other way, but I can see where that becomes important and useful because you need side effects on your input handling as well, since you're not taking kind of an IO of requests. You need something that can handle those side effects, right? Is that? Yeah, that's basically it. When you get IO involved, pure function composition starts to get a little bit cumbersome. And especially when you have a lot of dependencies to pass around, just pure function composition gets gets a little cumbersome as well. So things like the reader monad transformer are really helpful there. And then we pull in others for things like logging. And then the composition of those monad transformers gives us sort of a very convenient API to write these web request handlers. I think that makes sense from my cursory understanding of monads and functors and applicatives and all that stuff without completely grokking it. But I think I kind of get the picture of you're using the composition of the monads because you get your side effects instead of just the compositions of functions. So you're composing types, not just actual functions. Yeah. And this this is the this is the kind of thing that, in my opinion, falls squarely in real world Haskell. And it's the kind of thing that you can you can jump into and you can write code in this abstraction um, without necessarily like having to fully grok what a monad is. You don't have to understand the algebra of it in order to write code in this syntax and understand and predict what it's going to do. And I actually really like that about Haskell. There's a lot of talk about its unapproachability, but I think that getting folks into writing real-world code that does understandable things helps them through that process. So you've got this application now. Can you give a picture of what it looks like to actually deploy a Haskell application? Yeah. That both server-side and because you're actually having to send down code to the client side? Because again, from my limited perspective, I've seen some of the Haskell examples and stuff, but those are all just do a GHCI or GHC compile. And then you got some stuff that kind of runs, but it's more from a ancillary playing with it on your local dev machine kind of thing, trying it out, then actually trying to figure out how, how I would actually send this running Haskell program, be it an application server or some sort of client app that integrates with something else to be run on a local machine. What does that story kind of look like from getting that 
usage deployed. Yeah, definitely. Like I said, we have we have two parts. We have the server and the client side Haskell. The server is it runs on Amazon. We actually run our servers in Elastic Beanstalk at this point because our server side considerations are we don't have a lot of incidental complexity yet on the server, so we can deploy on sort of a semi-automated system like Elastic Beanstalk. So there, we build our Haskell server on CI. It's packaged into a Docker image. We ship that Docker image to a, a private Docker registry, and then we tell Elastic Beanstalk to please pull down that Docker image and run it on all of our instances. So that's that's nice and automated, and we're using Amazon's infrastructure as a service there to sort of minimize our footprint. And then client side, it's interesting. We're we're using a, a framework called Electron. So if you're familiar with GitHub's Atom editor, Electron is a project that was carved out of Atom, and it's essentially a a cross-platform desktop app framework where you write basically single-page web application code. And it's packaged up in a desktop app frame. So Electron is really Chromium plus Node. So you, you always know what Chromium version you're developing against. But it also gives you hooks into native code. So this is where Haskell comes in in the desktop. We bundle our Haskell binary, our compiled Haskell binary, in our Electron app. And then we just call it as a subprocess. So Electron has an update framework built into it called Squirrel that we use. And that's how we actually get physical, not physical, that's how we get code updates down to our users' machines. And Haskell just comes along with it. It's bundled as a part of the application. So it doesn't sound like, to some extent, that you're having to do too much target environment compilation for some of these binaries that you're sending down from Haskell, where you can just drop down the binary and it works versus having to get a process that builds it and sets it up per machine environment that you're working on then? Yeah, it's all compiled on our side, on our CI servers. We do a little bit of target-specific compilation, like obviously Windows versus Mac. You occasionally wind up with some C-style if-def statements in Haskell. But yeah, generally speaking, it's it's just built on our CI server. It's bundled up with the rest of our desktop application, and it, it just kind of flows through the same update channel. So it sounds like it's got a pretty nice deployment strategy in general from Haskell. Yeah, it's been very convenient to piggyback on all they've done in, in the Electron project. And Electron is very focused on, on building polished desktop apps using web technologies. And we've very much enjoyed that on the UI side where we build our UI in JavaScript. But it's also really nice to not have to build things like, like we're talking about deployment capability in Haskell. It already exists for us and we can just pull it in. So you're using... Electron and just other examples. You mentioned the GitHub Atom editor. I know Slack has picked it up for their desktop stuff in a number of cases for different environments. And you've got things like Visual Studio Code, I believe, and a couple of others that have just started taking and running with it. Yep. So it's all HTML, JavaScript based then. And you mentioned you've taken the more functional style of JavaScript. What does that look like when you're applying your functional style? Because I know there's a couple of different libraries they can use to take advantage of, whether it's something simpler like underscore or some of the later versions like Lodash or even evolved to Ramda, yep. which seems to be more in line with more of a Haskell way of thinking, or just flat out just do JavaScript by itself. What does your JavaScript look like from 
the perspective of you've got a bunch of people who are familiar with Haskell and hardcore, pure, functional typing systems. What does that look like when you all move to write your JavaScript? Yeah. So I think of this as a a place where functional in the small and functional in the large have kind of different strategies. So for functional in the small, you know, we're talking about expressions and functions. We do use Ramda. We love Ramda. We use it very heavily. We've also in the past pulled in things like underscore and Lodash because they're just great utility libraries that give us nice ways to compose things in JavaScript. So that's been great. We've recently started to drop Flow, which is a basically a gradual typing compiler for JavaScript on top of our code to get more of the strong typing advantages that we miss from the Haskell side. So Flow is built by Facebook. You can find it at flowtype.org. And it's similar to TypeScript, a slightly different trade-offs in how it works. But essentially, you add type annotations to your JavaScript, and Flow helps you compile them and find type errors. That's kind of then at the medium level. And then at the highest level of organization in our JavaScript code, we use React. It's All of our UI is, is React. And we now use Redux. So we originally used React without an additional framework. And then we pulled in Flux, and we've now moved on to Redux, which has been an, an awesome evolution. And it, it very much brings functional ideas to you know sort of UI application state management. It helps us define state in small chunks and then define all of our operations basically as functions over that state and also to define our UI as functions of state. So we've very much enjoyed Redux as a way to architect the high level of the program. So you take advantage of flow and gradual typing and Ramda, and you're kind of working kind of in and at the small to medium scale. Yeah. But JavaScript also has a lot of the prototypical kind of OO, kind of not mindset and mentality. How have you found structuring some of that stuff? in helping to ensure, because I'm assuming if you're coming from Haskell background, that you've pretty well bought into immutability and pure functions. How have you managed to balance that when you're writing your JavaScript? Yeah. So for the OO side of things, we really don't treat it as OO. You'll find no inheritance in our code except where we're defining a React component by extending the base class, like really basic usage there. And then in terms of bigger structure, the Redux framework really gives us a lot to hang on. It gives us this notion of stores where basically state lives and reducers, which take actions generated by the UI and then basically reduce them to store updates. So that kind of high-level architecture really, really dominates our application and doesn't leave us with too many places where OO can sneak in and cause snags. And it's not necessarily the OO, but it was just more about because of that ability to do more OO style, that the side effects and the hidden state that you might have and sneak in, whether or not it's via a closure so you don't see it to the outside world, but the functions not necessarily being forced to be as pure and it's more of a it's more of a strictness on your level as writing right. it than it is as part of the language. So have you found do you use any other libraries or anything to help manage that? Or is there anything else that you're, what are some of those strategies for someone just wants to take that back and say, 
we work in a lot of JavaScript, but what are some of the strategies that we can get to be push it to the more medium to larger scale functionality if we haven't even gotten to something like React? Is there anything that you found that helps? Yeah, so definitely keeping side effects out of what you would expect to be pure code. It's sort of a self-discipline thing. And, and it's easy for issues there to sneak in. It's easy to update some piece of state at the wrong part of the state cycle in Redux or make an XHR request from the wrong place in the application just because it's convenient and there's no compiler telling you that you shouldn't do that. That's definitely a, an issue that can sneak in. In general, we haven't had too much of a problem with it. And I think that having a, a strong high-level or sort of top-down application architecture in JavaScript where you have a well-defined place to cause side effects and an easy way to push state updates around so that you can get to that place in your code, that's really, really helpful because if you don't have that kind of architecture, then you know, you're always stuck reinventing the wheel. You're always stuck trying to figure out, well, what should the shape of this code be? Where really there's, there's a really a common shape that almost all of the code should have, which is that there is UI, and there are actions that happen either in the background or because of the user, and they should all flow through the same path. And somewhere in that path, there is a proper place for IO for side effects to happen. So having that architecture has really, I think it's what's, it's really making it work for us. And then have you taken advantage of anything like what I've seen of Brian McKenna's Fantasyland, where it gives you a lot of the monadic and functor and applicative contracts to be able to say, look, if we've got this flow concept of this gradual typing that we expect that this thing is being able to be signified pure or not based off other functor or monadic operations. Have you managed to take, have you pulled any of that kind of stuff in or is it just more at the level? Yeah, we haven't. We're very excited to, you know, pulling in Ramda was a big step and then starting to pull in flow was a, was another big step. And it feels like every time we can sort of corral our JavaScript code into a, a more well-defined set of behaviors, whether it's in the small with Ramda or in the large with Redux, like all of those things have been wins for us. So we're very interested in stuff like that. And is this something that everybody who's writing the JavaScript has pretty much had a Haskell background? Or is this something that you get more JavaScript background people and then you have to kind of corral and teach them and help them to understand the way that you handle JavaScript from your lessons of Haskell? Uh, it's, a, it's a mix. So at, at Wagon, we're, we're largely a team of generalists, not in the sense that everyone's good at everything, but in the sense that we're all excited and, and ready to jump in on, on any part of the code base. On the team at Wagon, there's also a mix of backgrounds. So some folks have come in with no Haskell background and some have come in as Haskell beginners and then correspondingly with varying amounts of JS experience. And there's been, there's been general agreement that these tools make programming in JavaScript better, and limiting side effects is a good thing, and it's helpful to have high-level application architecture that gives you a correct place to put each different kind of code. So there's been very little conflict over sort of improving JavaScript with these tools. So it hasn't been a huge hard sell Potentially because you've got the example of the code base, but people have recognized that there are certain problems that you tend to encounter when you write JavaScript in a certain manner, and that the way you're approaching it can help solve some of those problems that might show up. They don't always show up, but they can show up. And so it says, 
we've helped eliminate this whole class of problems if we try and write it this way. Yeah, and I think, honestly, I think we have the React and now the Redux communities to thank for that because the central ideas there are, are very functional. And with the evolution of the React ecosystem and folks using React starting to realize that abstractions like Redux really are helpful, I think it's really helping to push those high-level functional ideas around in that community. And so if you're a bunch of generalists and you're willing to hop in and work on whatever the part needs to be helped and could be interested in, you may have people who are coming into Wagon new if you're hiring people throughout the time or have been there but haven't had that Haskell background. So how do you help people get up to speed in Haskell and get familiar with it aside from just saying, here's the code base of other examples. Is there any good resources that you point to that help bring people up and understand Haskell in the real world instead of saying that you must get buried down into some of these abstract data type concepts and know the advanced topics of Haskell? Yeah, definitely. It depends on the the person's level in Haskell and where they're coming from. At the beginner level, I think that Learn You at Haskell is a, is a great tool and it gets people over a lot of those initial hurdles like the syntax, which is different from what lots of folks are used to, used to the lazy evaluation model, which can also be surprising at times, and just the idea that everything has a type and that the compiler is your friend in figuring out this world of types. So Learn You at Haskell is really good there. That's basically enough to start jumping into a Haskell code base uh, of course, you can run into advanced concepts that you don't understand. And I think one of the most useful resources there is Stephen Deal's What I Wish I Knew When Learning Haskell. It's a long web page that, that he maintains on his website. And it's basically a list of advanced or intermediate Haskell concepts with really wonderful, concise, clear explanations. So even for myself today, when, when I run across something in Haskell that I haven't seen before, that's one of the first places I'm going to look. If it's not a specific library that has documentation, if it's just a, a pattern I haven't seen before, I'll go check out Stephen Deal's website and look at what I wish I knew when learning Haskell. So we're a little bit shorter today just because of time constraints on the schedule. And then we had some Skype calls issues in the middle. So this is probably going to wind up being slightly shorter of a episode, but I want to make sure we still leave plenty of time to cover any other topics that you have before we kind of move towards the end. So is there anything that we've talked about so far that we need to go deeper in depth on? Is there anything we haven't covered that you think we need to let people know about from a Haskell and understanding it and kind of getting familiar with it or interesting things that you're able to take advantage of with Haskell or any other topics you want to make sure we cover before we, I want to give time early enough before you have to start wrapping up in this. Short sure, sure, sure. So go, going back to when we were talking about client-side Haskell, that was one of my, my biggest concerns as we started to move into building a, a desktop application at Wagon is, how is this going to be with Haskell? For one thing, not running it on a server, running it in a desktop environment where you know a lot less about the user's computer, but also running it cross-platform and trying to support Windows and Mac at the same time and eventually Linux as well. That was a concern for me going into it. And it's, it's played out really nicely so far, and I've been really impressed. Haskell, GHC specifically, produces binaries that, for the most part, just work, no matter what computer you're running them on. And it's well-documented, and it's developed enough to be debuggable when there are problems. So that's been really great. 
And then cross-platform support in Haskell has also been super solid. We knew going into it that Haskell, in theory, builds on Windows. But even in practice, it's, it's pretty pain-free to get it going on Windows. And a big help in that actually has been the recent addition of Stack to the Haskell community. So if you're not familiar, uh, Stack is a new Haskell build tool that, in some sense, replaces Cabal install. And it's made the whole process of putting together Haskell libraries and, and applications from lots of dependencies much simpler, many fewer dependency issues. And it's also made cross-platform builds a lot more straightforward to set up. So that's been really great. And I've been very impressed with how well Haskell has performed there. And so with the Haskell on the client side as well, how much of, if you're dropping off this Electron app and you've got these hooks to be able to run native code of some sort, outside of HTML and JavaScript and Node, how much are you actually just using that as a shell and it's not it's not even a full-on single-page web app other than just the presentation of it and calling out into your Haskell binaries? What's that balance look like? Is it pretty much just a thin wrapper shell for presentation? or And have you managed to get as much of the actual hardcore logic of the business logic and domain logic that you're dealing with when you're working on Wagon for the client side app? Is that managed to mostly live in Haskell or are you kind of split or are there certain pieces that you say this part's the JavaScript and this part's we're going full-fledged Haskell here? And what does that trade-off look like for when you're deciding what to put where? Yeah, it's a split for sure. We have made the choice so far that we want to keep Basically, our, our UI logic and our presentation logic, in some sense, the user experience of the application in JavaScript right now, because iterating very quickly across the JavaScript Haskell border so far isn't very easy. And right now we have them basically separated by a JSON API. So when I mentioned that the Electron app runs the Haskell code, what it's actually doing is spinning up a subprocess that is running a little web server. So our JavaScript code is calling to this local web server in much the same way that it's calling to the actual Wagon cloud server running in AWS. It's just XHR requests, which is very convenient from JavaScript because we have nice developed tools around that. But it does put this API between our Haskell and our JavaScript. So the concerns that we take care of strictly in the Haskell code are things like database connections and data processing, and then different things that we compute over data that comes back from the database. So we cache data locally, we compute statistics over the data, and then we also compute charts, basic groups and ags for charts in the Haskell code. So pretty much any place you'd be normally punching out to something that runs in Node on a client is something you're trying to wrap in Haskell, and then just whatever logic is there for the presentation is the part that's done in JavaScript then. Yeah. So a user will click a button in the application that will cause an XHR request from JavaScript. Our Haskell code will actually execute that query on the database, stream it back into a local cache on disk and compute some statistics, and then make that result available to the JavaScript application over this local API. And then any other communication that you're kind of having to do between the client and your web server would probably, I'm guessing, is done via your Haskell side as well, or is that done via another XHR request inside your JavaScript, inside the client app? It varies a little bit on what the concern is in, in any piece of code. When we want to push bulk raw data from the desktop to 
our backend web servers, we do that from Haskell because it's very robust. But things that concern sort of the UI and the user's state management, those are frequently XHR requests from JavaScript. So that kind of follows the same separation of concerns that we talked about earlier between the Haskell and the JS. That makes sense. And it's just getting a better picture of idea of, as you mentioned at the beginning of the call, Haskell is not necessarily the right tool for every job. So I was just trying to get a better picture of how you all see that dividing line of when does it make sense for something to be the JavaScript versus the Haskell side of your client app. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we're getting close to the end of our time that we have scheduled for us. And I know you've got some stuff to do today and then we've got other stuff. So is there anything that you want to plug? Any appearances that you're coming? Do you give any talks about this stuff? Do you have any blog posts or stuff about how you're treating Haskell and working in Haskell or, or any other just things that you want the audience to know about or think they would appreciate? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, if you do write SQL at your job or if you have colleagues who do and you think they could use a, a better SQL IDE and maybe even a way to, to sort of share data results around your team, they should check out Wagon. That's wagonhq.com. And they can just sign up there and get access to the product. For, yeah, a little bit more information on how we structure things at Wagon on the engineering side and, and how we've been building things along the way, you can check out our blog. That's at wagonhq.com slash blog. And if that sounds good to you and you, you like what you see there, you should maybe think about talking to us for a job. Uh, and you can find that at wagonhq.com slash jobs. We're hiring folks on the back end and the front end. Haskell experience or not, we'd love to hear from you. And then just to, to plug the Haskell community in the Bay Area, you should check out the Bay Area Haskell users group. That's on Meetup. You can find it through Google. And uh, if you sign up for one of those meetups, you will likely find yourself in the wagon office. We love to host the community here. And for those jobs, just because you have people from all over the place listening to this, are those jobs that are going to be out in the Bay Area or are you looking at remote people as well? Yes, I should I should have said that. These are We're an in-office team in San Francisco right now. So SF for the Bay Area. Okay. And then I'll get all those links added to the show notes. Is there... Any call to action that you have for people? So they've listened to this podcast. Do you have anything that you want them to ponder or go look at or check out or dig into more? Or Sure. We hear a lot in the world that folks don't realize that Haskell is good for solving your problems and, and doing real work. And I would encourage people to re-examine that. There's a lot of us at this point doing real work and building companies and businesses on Haskell. And it's an incredible tool. It, it helps us move faster. It helps us refactor. And uh, it helps us break fewer things along the way. So I think it's time that people take another look at it. That sounds like a great call to action. So where can people find you if they want to follow along and see what's going on in your world aside from Wagon? So we'll have all the Wagon links in the show notes. But where can people find to follow what else is going on with you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at MKSCRG. It's a silly Twitter name, but it's, it's my name without vowels. Yeah, and in, in general, you find what I'm doing on the on the Wagon blog and, and what we're up to here. And I'll make sure to get those added to the show notes as well. Cool. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Mike, for taking your time to join me today. I know we had a couple scheduling conflicts and some problems with the Skype call, but it was a real pleasure talking with you and very informative about using Haskell in the real world and getting it an actual real world usage other than just playing through examples. Absolutely. 
Thank you for having me on. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.